We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we are looking at Romans chapter 10. If you have your copy of scripture, I invite you to turn there to Romans chapter 10 this morning. We are right in that section of scripture in which the Apostle Paul is setting out his burdened heart. Uh, Paul had a burdened heart for the salvation of his countrymen. Uh, those old covenant Israelites who had heard and rejected the gospel. And yet Paul had told us back at the beginning of chapter 9 that he wished that if it were possible, he could be cut off in a curse that they might be saved. And here in chapter 10, again at the very beginning, you'll notice there in verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is old covenant Israel, is that they may be saved. Paul's heart is burdened for the salvation of those that are lost, even those who had rejected the gospel time and time again through many generations. And yet he himself, remember, had been an Israelite and had rejected the gospel, had persecuted the church, and yet Christ had had mercy on him. And so as Paul is explaining this, and as he has introduced the subject of God's sovereign electing mercy and grace, why do some believe and others do not? And what makes the difference? It is that God has had mercy on whom he will. As Moses said, as he said to Moses, and he has had compassion on whom he will, and he has hardened whom he will. And yet Paul has also made it very clear that Israel's unbelief was not because of God's electing mercy, but because of their self-righteousness. It's not because of God's sovereignty, but because they were self-righteous. And they were seeking, as Paul said, zealously to establish their own righteousness by the law and by their works. And so Paul has now introduced in this section in between Romans 9 and the end, this, the middle section of this, that contrast between works and grace law and gospel, self-righteousness, and faith. Now, let me say this this morning. Paul does this so much in so many of his epistles that it's really important that we listen. Why does Paul feel like he has to say it to you over and over and over again? Because our hearts, as I said last week, are deeply self-righteous. Whenever I think, here's me, here's you, I'm self-righteous. Whenever I think they really need the gospel, I don't, I'm self-righteous. Whenever I think I'm really gifted more than them, I should be seen, I'm self-righteous. In, in a million ways, our church isn't like those churches. That can be driven by self-righteousness. Many, many ways, because our hearts, as I noted last week, are hardwired to the covenant of works in Adam. And the hardest thing in the world is to come off of self-righteousness. And we can only do it when God brings us to a place where we see his, our need for his grace and his grace alone in the gospel. And that's something, let me say this this morning, that's something that it will take you a lifetime to fully learn. And we will never fully learn it in this life. We will always need to hear this. That's why Paul goes to such great lengths to press this home. We heard that in the meditation this morning. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness, 
which we have done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly in Jesus Christ. Paul's everywhere, everywhere contrasting the law and the gospel, works and grace, self-righteousness, and faith. And so he now goes into a fairly focused section on that. And in Romans 10, verse 5, Paul now says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. This is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him of whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him? And it might be better translated, whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask... Have they, that is Old Covenant Israel, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, some of you know well the account, the autobiographical account that Charles Spurgeon gives of his conversion. He was a boy of 15 and he was lost and he was wandering and he found himself wandering outside in London on one Sunday and he found himself drawn to a little primitive Methodist church. For all you primitive Baptists out there, the primitive Methodists had you first. They, they preceded you. And he walked into a primitive Methodist church, and there was no minister that day. And one of the deacons stood up, and he read out of the prophet Isaiah, Look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. That was Yahweh. That was the covenant Lord saying to 
the covenant people who were unbelieving, look to me, look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. And Spurgeon, as you know, if you know this story, was immediately converted. He saw clearly his need for Christ, and he would go on to be one of the greatest gospel preachers, arguably in the whole church, let alone the last several centuries. Clearly, God had done a work of grace in Spurgeon, but Spurgeon had not done anything. He was not seeking. He had not said, I'm going to read through the Bible and maybe I'll be convinced intellectually. I don't know. I hear all these arguments. Maybe I need to figure out from an intellectual perspective. He heard the word and he believed. He heard the Lord saying, look to me. And he looked and he was saved. Spurgeon would go on and have, as I've noted, the most fruitful ministry and would preach on numerous occasions On Romans 10, verse 13, I want you to look at that verse. It's sort of a centerpiece in this section there. Paul says, everyone, quoting Isaiah, everyone who, I'm sorry, quoting Joel, Joel 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Spurgeon says in one of his sermons on this, he said, I found more comfort in this verse starting off with the words, whosoever, whoever, than I would if it had said, if Charles Haddon Spurgeon believes on me, he will be saved. Because Spurgeon said, there may be another Charles Haddon Spurgeon out there. And that may be a word for him and not for me, but everyone is encompassed in the words, whosoever will call on the Lord will be saved. What a glorious Glorious word. Now, the Apostle Paul, as I've noted, is dealing with that difficult situation. Why has most of old covenant Israel not believed? Why have his countrymen so vehemently rejected the gospel? Why are they not believing? If God gave them the promises and the covenants and the worship and the patriarchs, if to them was given the Christ who is God over all. If all of those things were given to Old Covenant Israel and they had all the nurture, they had all the external blessings, they went to church every week, they sat and listened for for generation after generation after generation, but most of them, most, the majority, did not believe and perished. And Paul is grieved, grieved, that his countrymen have not believed. And he has said it's because they were seeking by their own works. They were seeking by trying to gain righteousness through law-keeping. But God never intended for righteousness to be gained by trying to keep the law and do good enough. Everywhere, and Paul's going to unpack this very, very strategically here in this section, everywhere, it was always and only by faith in the promise of the coming Redeemer who would provide redemption merely by grace. Now, Paul is going to do three things here in the section we're looking at this morning. First, he's going to talk about the way of justification again, the way of justification. Then he's going to talk about the means of justification. And then the instrument, the way, the means, and the instrument of justification. Notice when he comes to take up the way of justification, Paul is really giving us two voices as he reaches back to Moses. Now, 
one of the very interesting things, Paul does everything that he does very strategically. If you want to get the most out of reading the scripture, never think the apostle Paul is just saying things arbitrarily. Like, I think a lot of people really believe that Paul's just dumping things. And if I read my Bible as info dump, maybe I'll get something out of it. You can write this down this morning. The Bible is not info dump. You can write that down. The Bible is not info dump. Paul is giving us very strategic, very well thought through, very potent arguments. And Paul understands that if I am going to appeal to my countrymen who have rejected the gospel, if I am going to try to help those Israelites, let alone all the Gentiles, understand the gospel, but with Israel in specific, there is no one I can appeal to that is more important than Moses. Paul understands that. He understands if I want to bear witness to the gospel in the Old Testament for these Jewish hearers, I'm going to appeal to Moses, and that's what he does. Notice verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Now, there are two voices Paul's going to bring out of Moses. One of those voices is going to talk about the demands of the law. The other voice is going to talk about the free grace of God in the gospel. And both of them are in Moses. You know, it's interesting because whenever the Jews of Jesus' day argued with him, they would say things like, we have Moses. And Jesus in John chapter 5 says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he spoke of me. That's a bold and audacious claim, if that's not true. Jesus says, Moses spoke of me. You'll remember on the Emmaus Road when the risen Christ is talking to those two, and, and Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, he expounded to them in all the scriptures all those things about himself. And so Paul understands that he is on safe ground by appealing to Moses. He understands, I can go back to any part of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, I can go to any of the Torah, I can go into the very most difficult, and listen carefully, the most difficult portion of the Pentateuch, and I can bring these truths out, and so Paul does that very thing. He goes to the very end of Deuteronomy. I'm sure many of you have not read the last four chapters of Deuteronomy any time recently, probably that's a good guess. Paul goes to the most difficult part of the Pentateuch, to show that there is law and there is gospel, they function differently, and there is only one way of salvation, and it's not by law-keeping. Now, that's the first voice that we hear. Notice as he goes back, and he goes, he goes to Leviticus 18.5 and quotes that verse um, in paraphrase that Whoever does the commandments will live by them. And what Paul understands is that in the Mosaic law, in those commandments, God had embedded this principle of the requirement of perfect, continual obedience. That's always there. God can never lower that standard. You know, I think I've told you before, I love that quote by Tim Keller. You know, you think you've kept God's standard. You don't even keep your own. How many days go by? Oh, I didn't do it again. 
but you're going to think you kept God's standard of perfect, personal, continual obedience. Paul finds in that verse something of that principle, the righteousness. that He says the person who does the commandments shall live by them, and he is going to go on, and he is going to note that there is a strong contrast between trying to gain justification by keeping the law and gaining righteousness by believing. Now notice what he does. He goes to Deuteronomy 30, and he, it's, this is a very difficult section, and what Paul's doing is very difficult. Paul's taking something out of Deuteronomy 30, and he's kind of transposing it through the new covenant, and he's giving it to the people in a sort of pastoral way. But, but what he does is he quotes out of Deuteronomy 30, notice this, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, or who will descend into the abyss. Now, why does Paul appeal to a really obscure portion at the very end of Deuteronomy? Paul understands that the Jews to whom he is addressing had rejected Christ, did not believe that he came from heaven, did not believe that he descended and suffered, do not believe that he was the Messiah, do not believe that he rose from the dead. And so Paul sees in these words in Deuteronomy something of an analogy to what Christ has done. He has descended, he has suffered, he has died, he has risen, he has ascended. And in all of that, in his sufferings and his glory, he has provided a righteousness for his people. That's awesome. And what Paul's saying is if you want to be justified while rejecting Christ, you would have to go to heaven, come down, do what he did, rise again and return again, and none of you are doing that, but he has done that. Um, It's a really sophisticated argument Paul's raising. And what Paul is trying to say is that even what Moses said in the law was in every way serving what Christ would do in the gospel. That's, that's, those are the two voices. One voice says, do this and live. One voice says, Christ has come and done it. Listen, don't miss this. Spurgeon, in that same sermon, in which he said he would rather have the word whosoever than Charles Haddon Spurgeon, also said, if you would listen to the gospel the way that you would listen to someone who said, in 10 minutes I can make you filthy rich, it would do your soul good because what is being said about the gospel has eternal ramifications. And if someone could make you wealthy in 10 minutes, that is passing and fleeting and worthless. What Paul is saying here is absolutely essential if we're going to get what the gospel is and understand our need for Christ. Now, notice this, that Paul is, again, still talking about justification. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Our great need is for righteousness. How am I, who am unrighteous, going to be righteous before God? And there is only one way. It's only in Christ. It's only based on what he's done. It's not based in any way whatsoever on anything I contribute. Nothing. 
By the way, I was reading last week Thomas Chalmers. He has this great sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And at the end of that sermon, he says, talking about the greatness of God's grace in Christ and and how that motivates us, he says, I can hear someone saying, but that's going to lead to lawlessness. And Chalmers says this, he says, the freer, the better. The freer the gospel, the better. The more you put caveats on it, the more doors you leave open for you to shove works in and try to gain a standing based on your works. The freer, the better. Better. It is either you work perfectly or Christ has done it for you. That's the contrast that Paul is setting out in the two voices. Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson said this, and I love this. He says, God never justifies anyone other than sinners. The only people he justifies are sinners. That's it. That means if you're a sinner, and you are, and you're hearing this morning... It is either do this and live perfectly or trust in Christ who did it all. That's a word for sinners. And it's only those that hear that voice that will be saved. It is only those that listen to that voice that will be justified. It is only those that listen to that voice that will be righteous in God's sight. Not even because of their faith, but because Christ has come down, has suffered, has atoned for our sins, has has propitiated the wrath of God, has risen victorious and has ascended to the Father, and he is the righteous one. And all of our righteousness is in him. You know what? I wish I could stop this sermon and say, what did you hear? What did you hear? Were you listening as if someone said, in 10 minutes I can make you rich? Because that will get you to heaven forever. One of my sons said to me the other day, he said, Dad, eternity, that's kind of freaky to think about. It is, because we've never experienced it. It's a little bit scary to think about eternity. But that's it. You are going to heaven or hell. That's it. And Paul says, the righteousness that you need for eternal life is only found in Christ, only received by faith and faith alone. And that's it. Listen to this, Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly said, any teaching concerning salvation which does not express itself in terms of the demands of the law, perfect obedience, is false teaching. And any teaching about salvation that doesn't put it in terms of how the law has been satisfied by Christ is false teaching. It's false teaching. Somebody says, well, if you're going to be faithful to God, you trusted Christ, and now you've got to be faithful, and faithfulness is going to get you in that standing. That's another gospel. You will be faithful as you're trusting in Christ, but that doesn't play into you being righteous before God. Paul is highlighting that there is only one way of righteousness, and that is by Christ, and it is by the preaching of the gospel, and it is by faith and faith alone. Now, Paul is going to move from the way of justification in verses 5 through 9 to talk about the means of justification. What is the means by which Someone is justified. How will I know how I can be justified? Well, notice what Paul does. Paul says in verse 14, how are they to call on him whom they, uh, in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Now, it's very interesting. Remember, Paul's an evangelist at heart. That's, that's what he's setting out here. And as he is an evangelist, he understands that God has appointed one means, especially one means, by which men and women will be justified and saved. And that is through the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the word. Paul actually says here, essentially in verses 14 through 15, and even further, that apart from the preaching of the word, there's essentially no hope for salvation ordinarily. That God, the God who justifies, the God who will save you if you will trust in Christ, has appointed the means to be the preaching of Christ. Um, By the way, this is how Charles Spurgeon was saved. He heard someone saying, look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. And he was saved. He heard and he was saved. You know, I had in my room through all those years of rebellion that you all know about, I had a Bible verse I had carried with me um, through at least 10 years, and I don't know why I held on to it, but I had it in my room, and it was out of Jeremiah, and, and the verse said, is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And I remember at the height of my depravity thinking, I know that I need God's word to break apart this hard heart. God has appointed the preaching of the word for the salvation of his people. Um, Paul actually talks about the impossibility of believing on him apart from it. How are they to call on him of whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Now, I want you to focus on the second part there of verse 14. He doesn't say, as many of our English translations say, how will they believe on him of whom they have never heard? In the Greek, it's actually, how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? You see, when the word is preached faithfully, Christ is speaking. How do I know that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing to one of the new covenant churches. This is long after the ascension of Jesus. And he's writing to that church, and he's talking about how Christ has brought peace through the blood of his cross. And then Paul says to a people who have never met Jesus in the flesh, he says, and he came and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. Christ came and preached peace. When did Jesus come to Ephesus? When Paul came to Ephesus, when Paul proclaimed the gospel, he understood that the living Christ was speaking, that means, by the way, when God's word's being proclaimed and we're checked out and we don't care and we're... By the way, I had this guy in my congregation once who would look and be like... And then at the door be like, that was a great sermon. I'd be like, I saw you checking out your watch. Don't try to slip that past me. But when we are disconnected or uninterested, it's not a slight to me or the minister. It's a slight to Christ because he's the one speaking when the gospel is proclaimed. He came and preached peace. How are they to believe on him whom they have never heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? The Lord Jesus has sent, like he sent his disciples out. And he sent them out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. He has appointed that. When you read through the book of Acts, there is one way and one way only that people are being saved. As the gospel goes out. And Christ's ministers carry it out and proclaim it in the synagogues. 
by the river where they're praying, to a eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch on a chariot, wherever it is, the word is going out, people are being saved. Now, that also means that we believe this, that we believe that that's how it works and that we are confident that's how it works. There's another story about Spurgeon. I know I'm not Baptist, I'm very Presbyterian, but you're getting another Spurgeon this morning. (laughs) Now, there's another story about Spurgeon. A man came to Spurgeon and said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, I've never had anybody converted under my ministry. You've had all these people converted under your ministry. Why have I never had anybody converted under my ministry? And Spurgeon said to him, well, you don't really believe that people are going to be converted under your ministry. And the man said, no, I don't. And he said, and that's why nobody's been converted under your ministry. You see, we've got to believe that this is the means God has appointed for the salvation of sinners. And if we believed it, we would do a whole lot more of it. We would pray for it a whole lot more, and we would support it a whole lot more. And when we don't believe it, we will try to entertain people in the church or tickle their ears with stuff that will never get them eternal life. Listen, this is the most serious thing anyone can tell you. And you've got to believe it. And you've got to believe in the Christ that speaks whenever his word is proclaimed. Um, You know, Paul's going to go on and talk about um, hearing and believing, but he's going to use the idea of the heart throughout this section, the heart. If we believe in our heart. You see, it's not just an intellectual hearing. It's that spiritual hearing internally. I remember when that happened to me in 2001, and as I was sitting on a couch reading the Bible really for the first time in my life as an open book, um, I remember reading that parable of the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field. And I remember thinking, Christ is the treasure in my heart. Christ is the treasure and he's been there the whole time and I didn't see him. That's what it means to hear with the ears of faith. Um, it's, It's a spiritual hearing. It's an inner hearing. It's hearing the voice of the good shepherd say, I call my own and they follow me. I want to ask you this morning, have you ever heard the voice of the savior and said, I've heard that, and I am going to follow him. Because that's the response to hearing, is to say, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. I have heard, and I will follow him. Um, That's everything. It's everything. There's literally nothing else I could tell you this morning that's more important than that. Have you heard? Have you heard? Not just know a lot. People can know a lot of theology and have never heard the gospel. Paul says, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Now we've considered briefly the way of justification. It's only based on what Christ has done. We've considered the means. It's by hearing the preaching of the word. And then strewn throughout this is really the instrument. I've touched on this. It's believing. It's trusting. Um, Again, notice verse 11. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Um, what is believing in Christ? It's, it's taking God at his word. It's saying, I know that he is who he says he is, and I will cast myself on him. You know, John Bunyan, in that really painful autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, where one day he's close to the Lord, and the next day he says, I, I knew I was going to go to hell forever, up and down, like a roller coaster. But at the end of that book, he essentially says, look, I'm trusting in him, and even if he decided to send me to hell, I will trust in his name. Now, it's a bad analogy, but the point is good, that what it means to believe in Jesus is that there's no other name that you are staking your life and your hope and your eternity on, and there is no other name that you will be calling on in that last moment when you live, and that if you are trusting in him now, there is no other name that you will call on. That every true believer will be just like the thief on the cross. Lord, just put me in your memory. Just remember me. Have mercy on me. If you have done that, if you have said, Lord, have mercy on me. I need your blood. I need your sacrifice. I need your righteousness. I need you. Have mercy on me. If you've done that, you've called on the name of the Lord. That's what it looks like to believe on the Lord Jesus. If you've never done that, I'm begging you this morning that you would do that because there's only one way of righteousness in life, and that's it, to cast yourself completely on the Lord Jesus, not with any of your works. You know, there's this great account that David Dixon, an old Scottish uh, theologian, said. He said, he said, when I think about my death and I think about Judgment Day, he said, I take, I take all of my bad works, all my evil works, and I put them in a pile, all the sin and wickedness you've done, I put it in a pile. And then I take all the good things I've done, I put it on the same pile, and I flee to Christ. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. I take all my evil works, all my good works, I put them in a pile, I flee to Christ. Have you done that? And somebody just told me, Derek Thomas is about to retire, and every sermon he's pleading with the people to trust in Jesus because he knows he only has so much time to preach the good news. Listen, don't leave this place this morning. If you're unsettled, if you don't like this, that means you've got to flee to Christ. If you love this, it means you've got to flee to Christ. You know what I say to unbelievers? You've got to look to Christ. You know what I say to believers? You've got to look to Christ. It's the same remedy, because it's only for sinners. And it levels our pride, and it strips us of anything that we're holding on to. And it says, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. So what it means to trust in him. And the one that comes to him, he will never cast out. You know, there are times we maybe struggle with assurance. Many of us have known those struggles with assurance. I have oftentimes found great comfort when I've struggled with assurance of salvation, listening to that verse, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if I ask myself, Nick, have you called on the name of the Lord? Yes, many, many, many times. And if I said no, I would know I was lying. And that's one very substantial mark that we belong to him because all it is is calling on him. Think about Peter when he's drowning, when he's, he's, he's sinking, he's looking at the storm, 
That's representative of the circumstances of life. Christ is there. He's going to him. He's walking to him. He sees the wind. He sees the waves. He's afraid. He's scared. That's us in life. That's our sin. That's the turmoil of our circumstances. He's seeing all that. He takes his eyes off of Christ, puts them on everything else, and he starts to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And what does Jesus do? He takes him by the hand, and he saves him. And I would challenge you this morning to find one example in the pages of Scripture where someone really cried to the Lord from their heart, and they were not saved by him. And you will not find one. Not one example where someone cried out in desperation, Lord, have mercy on me or I perish, that he didn't have mercy on and save. And Paul says, everyone, Jew or Greek, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, you see how flattened the playing field is? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen to this. I'm going to close with this. Spurgeon... I'll say one more thing, sorry. Spurgeon said about everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, he said, it is a big net. It's a big net. Anybody. He says, whoever, if I call on the name of the Lord, if you call on the name of the Lord, if the man who lies dying calls on the name of the Lord, he will be saved. Is that not marvelous? I don't know what better news you could hear. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Now you have to acknowledge that Christ is Yahweh. He is the Lord. Paul will say that. Whoever confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is God over all, and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, he will be saved. Now that means belief and confession are inseparable. So that if I believe... I also confess. If I believe in my heart, I confess with my mouth. Let me say this this morning. It is possible, and many people have confessed with their mouth without believing in their heart. That's the frightening thing. Many people can confess, but don't believe. But it is impossible to believe and not confess. Whoever believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, And with the mouth, one confesses unto salvation. Look, this is so simple. By the way, Paul is writing to slaves here, largely Roman slaves. He's not writing to academic intellectuals. He's not going to the Ivy League towers. He's writing to uneducated slaves, and his argument is extremely sophisticated in this chapter. Ten Old Testament citations used in myriads of different ways that are hard to understand exactly what he's saying. But here is one very simple thing Paul says recurrently. Whoever believes on him will be saved. Now, I am experienced both enough in my former life and as a pastor to know the chances are good there are people here this morning that have never believed and aren't believing and haven't called on him. And so I'm talking to you first and foremost, whoever believes on him will be saved. But you've got to believe. You've got to hear his voice and you've got to respond in faith. But for everyone who does, there's that sweet assurance. I want you to focus on verse 11 with me as we close. For the scripture says, everyone 
who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you know what judgment day is going to be like for you if you're not in Christ? It's going to be shame unto judgment. And I'm not saying that hatefully. All the shameful things we've done, looked at, thought, said about others, even maybe in the same fellowship, laid bare. But whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Why? Because he's atoned for our sins. He's provided us with righteousness. He's blotted them out like a thick cloud. He says, your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more. No more guilt, no more shame. I want you to hear that this morning. Whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Man, sign me up. That is good news on judgment day. You can cling to that and be sure of that. When I'm fearful, what if, this, what if the shame of this comes out? Whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will be saved. That's the beauty of the simplicity of the good news. And I hope that's good news to you this morning. Whether you heard his voice 22 years ago, like I did next week 22 years ago, or whether you hear it for the first time today, I hope that you will hear the simplicity and beauty of that good news. Anyone who believes on him will be saved and will not be put to shame. Let him who has ears to hear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for these precious truths We thank you, our God, that you have devised a way of salvation in your infinite wisdom, that it is all in Christ, that it is all given freely by your grace, and it is all received by faith and faith alone. Lord, we thank you for the preaching of the gospel. We thank you for Christ crucified and risen. Would you fix our minds on him? Would you fix our hearts on him? Lord Jesus, would you make us to hear your voice Every time your word is proclaimed, would you give us ears to hear? We pray that you would do that for the first time today, for those that have never heard and never believed, never called on your name. And would you do that for those of us who have for maybe the thousandth time? Our God, we thank you and praise you for the greatness of your grace and the freeness of the salvation you've given us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.